You are listening to the Tour des Flâneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 10, today we're in Megève. Well, here we are. This is the team for week two of the Tour de France. My name is Rose Manley and some listeners may recognise my voice as I'm the presenter of Tour de France Feminine, but I've crossed over to the big, macho, beefy, burly men's Tour de France uh, side for one week only. And I'm joined by Francois Tomazo, who everyone will know because you, you, you're, you said actually yourself, Francois, there'll be so many team members on the cycling podcast for this Tour de France. We could be our own bike squad, I believe. Absolutely, and it's just about time where 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 the woman you know introducing us and and can <laughs> anchor in the show. So I'm glad you know to be part of it. But in this but in this bike team that you're creating, you must be the leader, Francois, because you're the only person that's going to do the distance, I believe. <laughs> I'm the I, I might be the road captain or the the, the bottle carrier or or, 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 or most probably the you know the old DS that doesn't take decision and drives the second car. <laughs> <laughs> At the back. <laughs> no hands on the wheel. And uh, you were being a little bit coy, Francois, I think, on the, the last episode you heard about who would be joining us this week. And so I can give us a little drum roll here. And it is Ian Boswell. Ian, welcome. Yeah, it's great to be here, um, especially along with our team captain, Francois, who's been a wealth of knowledge of, of all things French. And I uh, rolled into Morzine last night and we we're out to dinner and multiple people came up to take pictures with Francois so our, our team leader is a popular one and I'm sure we'll get into it but we may have more teammates by the end of this tour than some actual teams in the Tour de France. Yeah that, that's very very true but I have to say in true well in fashion that is true of this Tour de France particularly it's been a frantic start to the race and it was a bit of a frantic start for you Boz coming over you kind of flew in and were just hitting the ground running straight away. Yeah, I got in last night. I mean, this opportunity came and, um, you know, I said this before on the Richard Moore Memorial podcast that, you know, one of the regrets I've had in my life was not coming to join the cycling podcast at a grand tour. I was invited several times. And so when, when Lionel pitched it over, I uh, thought I'd better get on a plane and get over to the tour. And, and it's really cool to be here, um, you know, covering the race, but it's definitely eye-opening to just the scale of the Tour de France on the other side of the barriers. And uh, you touched on it there, Ian, that some of the teams are already depleted. Uh, we just, of course, seen stage 10 finish, but there were quite some notable absentees at the, the lineup with stage 10, with unfortunately COVID re rearing its ugly head again. I know that you and Mitch, uh, Francois, talked quite a lot about um, COVID and its effects on the peloton uh, in the last couple of episodes. And I was kind of hoping when we saw that the UCI tested all of the riders, didn't they? Um, straight after stage nine and it came back with uh, nobody returning a positive COVID test but since then uh, we've found out that George Bennett has tested positive for COVID-19 and Luke Durbridge um, as well was that kind of a, a, a I guess it can't be a surprise can it that the peloton is uh, still being affected by COVID at this stage the surprise was the uh, negative results of the tests you know they conducted on at the end of stage nine uh, when the results came 
well, you know, I, I know I shouldn't say that, but it, it came as a bit of a joke. Nobody really, you had 600 guys, almost 600 guys, if you take staff members, mechanics, everyone, uh, you know, taking those tests and not one single test. And then and two days later, you got two positive tests. Uh, it's, yeah, it's actually prompted ASO to take um, a decision today. Uh, about because I, I suppose the teams were, were starting to get nervous about it. Actually, it might affect the podcast a little bit. We 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 are not allowed anymore to 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 go to the buses. The paddock uh, is going to be uh, locked down uh, again. And actually, for my last day on the our last day on the in the paddock the, this morning before it, it gets locked down again, uh, the the general feeling was that uh, you know. The, the, the test, the test uh, done after stage nine were, how could I say, unprofessional or, or, or too, too rushed or too hurried or, you know. Uh, there were lots of stories circulating about the way they were done. But, well, thankfully, if I, if I can say, uh, you know, it, it's actually from team testing that uh, George Bennett and, uh, and Luke Durbridge had to, well, to go home or, you know, out of the race. Uh, uh, <laughs> A slight, uh, you know, joke in a way, but Lionel Bernie, as you know, got infected by COVID, and he was in, in close contact with Mitch Docker. Uh, Luke Durbridge is uh, is probably Mitch's best friend, and the last interview Mitch did for the podcast before he returned to Melbourne was with George Bennett. I'm not I'm not spreading any rumors. You're going to wait a minute. We're going to get some libel <laughs> cases, Francois. That's not that's not the, this is that's not what week the week two team want is libel cases. Just suggestions. Anyway. <laughs> but Ian, you know, as a as a former rider, I mean, can you imagine? Mentally, what kind of a toll that takes uh, on the riders? As much as you know, they're going for uh, stage wins, or say, say someone like Tajay Pogatar, what does it mean for him to be in the yellow jersey, but then have the threat of COVID in, you know, within his own team, even? Yeah, I mean, I spoke to quite a few riders at the start today, and some were very cautious about, you know, doing fist bumps or nothing at all. Um, I won't mention the rider, but I came across a, an old teammate, and he gave me a hug, and I said, "Are you sure you want to give me a hug with COVID?" You know, and you know, I just arrived from the U.S. and you know was tested before I came, but you know, it really depends on the rider's mentality. This rider just simply said, "You know, it is what it is. If I get it, I get it." Um, but you could probably try to avoid it a little bit. And, you know, I think we're going to see over the next couple of days riders really being more cautious um, just because, you know, it really could derail anyone's tour here. And I have to say, on the UAE team, there is also Rafa Micah, who I believe returned uh, a positive test, but it was under the viral load, which is a, a term that I've never come across, but I've suddenly <laughs> come face to face with it at the Tour de France. This idea that you can have uh, COVID, but it can be not enough. I know, and we know from uh, that Bob Jungels also was in a similar case just before the start of the, the Tour de France too. So Rafa Mike is allowed to continue racing. But I mean, the, the big weakness that if anyone can find with Tadej Pogacar's uh, attempt at getting another yellow jersey would be his team. So what does that mean, Francois, for the GC? Well, I, I think that's, uh, to use my favourite expression, and I haven't... Uh, I haven't used it on the podcast yet. Uh, the, 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 the suggestion that Pogacar's team was weak was bullshit. Mm. That's, that's, that's done. I've said it. 
but but now that that George Bennett is out and the Rafael Maika is kind of in jeopardy, and he, even if he's not contagious, because that's what he means, but maybe he's, he's, he's affected by by the virus anyway. Even if he was off the road for a, for a while today, but uh, yeah, it, it could have it could really be a factor, uh, you know, and it might prompt other teams to 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 attack, you know, encourage other team teams to attack him, knowing that he, he doesn't have the support of, of probably two of the guys with Brandon McNulty who, who should have you know, helped him in the mountains. So yes, I mean, COVID is, is already affecting the race for sure. And now, Francois, you spoke to Matt White, who is the DS of uh, Team Bike Exchange, uh, about COVID uh, and about the fact that uh, Luke Durbridge wasn't lining up at the uh, stage this morning. So let's uh, have a listen to what he said. Luke was not able to start this morning. What, uh, what happened? He had some symptoms in, during the middle of the night there and woke up our doctor and our doctor did an immediate rapid test on him and he returned to positive. Isn't it strange that I mean, all the tests uh, you know, after, after the day before yesterday's stage were negative and all of a sudden we have a positive case? Well, he, he, had, he had symptoms only in the middle of the night. So he's been tested multiple times over the last week, turned a positive test unfortunately and had to leave the race. There's a big uncertainty around COVID on, the, on this race. I mean, is it, is it stressful in a way for the teams now? It's been a stress for two, year, two and a bit years. But uh, the difference is that uh, yeah, in 2020, the teams were adapting to health department regulations. And now all those health department regulations are gone. Yet we, have a, yet, uh, we are still getting uh, control. But without the controls that protect us. Do you think that, that that was a good way to do it? Do you, or do you think some maybe the controls should have been a little bit tougher? It's a decision the UCI I think could adapt could adapt the way we're testing. I think uh, at the end of the day, before when you look at before COVID, when a rider got sick, the, the doctor made the decision of when they should should continue or not. Now when you have a the common flu, if you have a fever, then you don't start a bike race either. There's a lot of time in the past where people have been been sick in races and had to pull out. So uh, it'll be interesting how those rules get adapted over the next year because a lot of other sports have moved in a different direction and we are still playing to, this, to similar rules to what we had uh, 2020 when we had different restrictions. Yeah. There, were, there are obviously questions, you know, roaming about the, the validity of the test on the other day. Do, do, do you think, I mean, what do you think about that? Well, we do our own tests as well. I have no idea. We went to the test, we got our results, Salavi. Do our own tests regu quite regularly as well. What, like every three days or? Uh, different for different groups of people. We've got bubbles within bubbles. Our riders and, uh, and staff have been tested in between the official tests as well. Look, uh, a loss, I mean, uh, anyway? Yeah, for uh, sure. If he, if he crashed, crashed out, it'd, it'd be a loss. It's our sport, we'd have to adapt. You've got to adapt quickly. The biggest concern that we have at the moment is that it's only isolated with Luke. That's our biggest concern at the moment, but everyone else is negative today, which is great. We can do no more. We can do no more than everyone's healthy today. We race today and, uh, and tomorrow's another day. No, it wasn't just from COVID that some of the riders didn't start. We had Ben O'Connor, who I mean, just had a, a terrible tour in the end, didn't he? A, a glute tear that he couldn't recover from there. And I think, but I think we kind of knew that was on the cards seeing him during stage nine, didn't we? I mean, it seemed like he was almost pleading with his team car to let him retire. <laughs> um, but he didn't, he, he struggled on, but uh, he says that now that he's looking ahead to the Vuelta. And Alexi Vuillemos, which was a, an interesting one that I, th I think on stage nine, people thought he had heat stroke because he was vomiting during the stage. And uh, 
also collapsed, I believe, at the at the finish line. But I believe that he has a, a skin infection that he's having to uh, get seen to. So those riders also didn't start. But I better get on with the tale of the attack. We can say now it was a frenetic stage, wasn't it, to be honest? A big breakaway. I mean, 25 people, good luck pronouncing all their names. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I didn't, I haven't said everybody's name. Apologies if you were in the breakaway and I didn't, don't bother mentioning your name mm. because, as you said, 25 riders is an awful lot. But uh, let me yeah. get on with the tale of the attack. Just a quick one. I, I talked before, before I talked to Yvonne Le Danois, who is the Arkia Samsung teammate, um, team manager this morning, and I, I asked him who's, who's going in the break today. And he said, everyone except Nairo. <laughs> <laughs> so it sums up the feeling at the start. <laughs> that, yeah, that, well, yeah, that's exactly how it went, wasn't it? Well, you know, this is, what, this is how it went. So um, it was a late start for the riders on stage 10, a punchy 148-kilometre route from Morzine, finish, finishing with a shallow 19.2-kilometre long climb into Megev. It was billed to be a day for the breakaway, and with so many teams in the fray early on, it was a frantic start, almost 48 kilometres covered in the first hour of racing. With 95 kilometres to go, veterans Luis Leon Sanchez, Philippe Gilbert, Pierre Roland, as well as Dylan Van Bala got away, the quartet accounting for six tour stage wins and six monuments between them. Over the next kilometres, the leaders were joined in waves by 21 riders, uh, among them Cobbles stage winner Simon Clark, Leonard Kamner and breakaway regular Magnus Court. The peloton, led by UAE, were content to let the break build a decent lead. Bear in mind, Kamner was the highest place rider on GC at 8 minutes 43. Um, EF's Alberto Betiol struck out with 42 kilometres to go, building a lead of 25 seconds on the rest. But then complete chaos hit the tour as climate protesters sat in the road disrupting the race. And we'll hear a little bit more from the roadside uh, from you two a little bit later about that. Uh, Betiol skirted around the demonstration and through the flares uh, before the inevitable move by the organisers to halt the race. At this point, Betiol had a lead of 7 minutes 25 on the peloton and some 40 seconds on the immediate chasers. Once racing resumed, the peloton seemed content to let the gap open further, putting Kamna in the virtual yellow jersey. Betiol stayed out for some time before being caught with 12 kilometres to go by the trio of Fred Wright, uh, Benjamin... Would you say Benjamin Thomas? Benjamin Thomas. Benjamin Thomas and uh, Georg Immermann. Four became eight as the leaders were joined by Van Bala, Simona Velasco, Matteo Jorgensen and Betiol's teammate Magnus Court. Another move by Betiol was snuffed out by 7.5 kilometres to go. Sanchez struck out with six kilometres to go, looking to add to his four Tour de France stage wins. He pulled out some 27 seconds while his teammate Fred Wright frustrated the chasers behind. Inside the final three kilometres, Movistar's Jorgensen and Nick Schultz of Bike Team Bike Exchange set off in pursuit. They formed a trio with less than two kilometres remaining. But that quickly became a quartet when Van Bala joined them. He was the first to attack, but it came to nothing. And inside the last 500 metres, five more riders from the earlier breakaway latched on. Sanchez had a dig with 250 metres to go, shadowed by Schultz and Court. The veteran dropped away, leaving the other two to duke it out. It came down to a last desperate throw of the bikes at the line, caught winning by just half a wheel. As for the overall, well, that was a close run thing as well, but 
no cigar for Kemner. Pogacar making back some of the time to keep his grip on the yellow jersey. Kamner now in second place, 11 seconds back, and Vingago third at 39 seconds. The cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight, and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, title sponsors of the Cycling Podcast. And uh, I'm sure you'll be aware already, but they've started their own podcast too, the Super Sapiens Podcast, hosted by Zylon Van Eck and Dr. David Lippmann. In a recent episode, they were joined by someone that I considered to be one of the most interesting voices in the peloton, as well as being a brilliant bike rider. And that is Ashley Moorman Passio. Uh, let's hear a clip. In the first part of the journey, the first time I used uh, Super Sapiens, it was really overwhelming. And so, you know, it's nice to to now have that experience and to be able to share it with other people because I think sometimes that can be a bit of a block in the beginning. I have to be honest, my first thought was like, mm, I don't know if I want to put it on because, you know, it was so overwhelming and I didn't really, you know, I didn't know what to do with the information. But of course, the team was doing it and I thought, okay, Ashley, open your mind, you know, (laughs) and I put it on. And I tell you the second time um, I used it, that's when I really started to to grasp it. Find out more about Super Sapien's system of continuous glucose monitoring, which can help tailor your fueling and training for success. Go to supersapiens.com. Thanks, Rosa. I I think it was a great tale of the attack, actually. Probably the best I've heard from many... years (laughs) years <laughs> no, <it> was, <laughs> you're too kind <laughs> uh, it was really cool it was really cool it was really cool as well or not really cool it was rather hot when uh, we uh, with Ian we uh, we came out of the press room to uh, to watch the riders ride past uh, six k's from the from the finish you know the uh, on the real final stretch of the of the um, what they call the Côte de l'Altiport going at the, over at the top of, uh, of the Megève Resort and uh, when we were there you know we saw the, the break coming coming up and uh, and the peloton uh, speed pass with the, the fans and we were among the fans of course but we also discussed the uh, you know one of the events of the day which was a demonstration that took place um, you know so while demonstrations for climate change and this is what we recorded at the time. We also had this, this uh, well, not not really surprising because we've seen that at tennis tournaments uh, and at other events, but uh, demonstrations stopped the race that were neutralized for 12 minutes. What, what happened uh, there? I don't know. Um, I was I was in the, the press booth um, and I was watching the race and the next thing I knew there was pink smoke on the road and I noticed that Betty all went around the commissaire car and was ahead of, ahead of the commissaire and he was ri- riding and then at one point a motorbike came up to him and told him he had to stop commentary was in French so I don't actually know what the protest was about or what it was for so, so apparently so it, it was seven demonstrators for you know against climate change so they, they, they sat down on the road and, and as Betiol was so Betiol managed to sneak past them but then when the first the, the rest of the breakaway arrived they were forced to, to, to stop and, and fearing that the peloton might be in trouble as well the organizer decided to neutralize the race and to, to restart the race later on taking into account the, the gaps at the moment of the interruption uh, there was there were 
interesting scenes with the riders stopping and talking to the demonstrators. It was, it was all very, how could I say, yeah, no, almost friendly. And I suppose that, you know, in many ways that the riders in the budget support the, the fight, you know, uh, against the consequences of uh, climate change. So there was no uh, aggression or violence or even tension or excitement. I mean, it's a little bit, as you know, demonstrations are part of the Tour de France. There's, uh, there's always one, at least per per edition that this was one of them uh, but it, it didn't well, it, it only stopped you know the race for 12 minutes and it was a, a kind of an incident that you can talk about but but then the race uh, went on yeah well I mean I guess the last time I remember a, a demonstration stopping the race was when I did it in 2018 there was a flat state I think I think we were in the Pyrenees and the gendarme had actually tried to pepper spray the protesters which then blew into the peloton and I remember taking a big breath and like feeling it in my lungs I remember Froome had it in his eyes really bad and we all had to stop but there was no breakaway at the time but I, I do wonder, maybe we can try to hopefully speak to some riders to finish to see, does it benefit the, the breakaway or the peloton? Um, you know, Betiel got a, a short break from being out front, but um, well, here comes the peloton now. Well, it's still a pretty big bunch, um, and as we see them go past, we see Vanderpool just dropping off the back, but I saw Niels Pollitt was in the group as well, so it's clearly, it's as you said, it's, it's a bumpy stage. It's not a mountain stage, you know, we're 8K to go. Uh, UAE was on the front with a few riders, so I actually saw Mike up there. So he's clearly feeling good enough to still be at the front of the race. Maybe we're going to need to rush back to the to the press room to see the finish of the stage. We should do that. It was a pretty crazy stage, wasn't it? In the end, I think uh, everyone was thinking there was going to be a breakaway. There's probably some of the GC teams were thinking maybe they could have a slightly quieter day uh, if they were lucky. Uh, but that was it. Was just a hectic uh, start with every single team wanting to get someone uh, in that breakaway um, and Ian come to you you know what is it that makes it um, days like that when the breakaway just can't get away for you know tens and tens of kilometers yeah I mean it was a super fast start leaving from Morzine it was you know we drove out of Morzine this morning and it was a pretty long downhill and very quick you know we were listening to it on race radio and you know anytime the race is faster you have to go exponentially faster to actually get away. You know, one of the things we noticed and we just mentioned when Francois and I were on the side of the road was that, you know, Pogacar didn't give away the yellow jersey. And I thought for sure that today, you know, being a stage where, you know, he's potentially down, well, at least one teammate, Mike has obviously got COVID, you know, would it be a good day to give away the yellow jersey considering there's two big days in the Alps? And, you know, obviously in the end he retained the jersey by 11 seconds and, and surprisingly looking at results that he finished at the front of the group which is a little bit surprising for me that he's still going deep enough to finish at the front of this group knowing that it was you know not the hardest of climbs at the finish but that he still was up there you know pushing the pace and, and you know trying to make a difference which given what's coming up the next two days is a little bit surprising that he's you know he's still fighting so hard to the end. Pogacar is, is in a kind of a on a kind of a run he can't stop you know if 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 it, there's no lull for for a guy like this. He, he's on a roll and he keep, must keep rolling. The the rest day was was already a break in his uh, domination. He, he, I think he needs to ride at the front and uh, he, he's done it very well. And I don't think it kind it, it kind of hampers his energy or anything. It's, it's the way he needs to ride and it's it's impressive impressive to see. Uh, but let, let's let's be honest about it. The the the, the GC riders, after all, had still had a reasonably Quiet day today uh, compared to the, you know, the day we really belong to, to to the breakaway. You had loads of big names in there, guys out for out for revenge, old uh, you know old veteran 
you know, excellent riders. And Magnus Gort, I, I mean, we, we have to, we have to really to, 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 to pay homage to, to Magnus Gort because, I mean, what a, what a great... To, we, okay, we, we have Wout van Aert, one of the monsters, you know, finishing second, fir, uh, first, you know, in the, all kinds of terrain. But what Magnus Gort has done since the start of this uh, uh, Tour de France is pretty amazing. We know... The, the qualities of the guy, as, tr as strong he can be on different terrains. But I mean, from the clown of Denmark, because of obviously you know he played, he had great fun there, uh, you know, going for the KOM, KOM points. But he also lost lots of en energy, being you know up the road uh, uh, all the time to winning his second stage in the Tour de France, and he's at, what is it, his fifth in a Grand Tour? Or I mean, it's. Uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I, I'm, we were really impressed, and uh, and uh, well, what do you think about it, Ian? Yeah, I mean, I was really impressed that he's you know he's raced so hard for so many days, and and he's still managed to recover. And you know, today really is a perfect stage for him, and I think not just for him, but also for the team. You know, EF has you know really struggled throughout the entire season of you know kind of getting that big result, but you saw they really came to the fore today with with Betty all and with Magnus. You know, and, and racing as a team and racing with passion and. Um, you know, I think Magnus is an incredibly popular rider in the peloton in general, but I think even more so after kind of his exploits in, in you know, Denmark and then even in France. And, you know, it's, it's always great to see, you know, friendly people in the peloton win the race. And I think uh, Francois spoke with Charlie Wigelius at the finish, so we can kick over to that and hear what Charlie had to say about Magnus's victory today. It's not as though it's a surprise that he's that high quality a rider. It was great what he did in Denmark. But we said internally that it was really important at some stage to draw a line under that project because he's such a high quality rider and that we didn't think that fighting for the Polkadot jersey for a few days was enough for him and that we thought he was good enough to win. And I'm really glad that he could show that today and his tour wasn't just defined by what he did in Denmark. We, we were a little bit worried about the, the fatigue and uh, I, mean, I mean, winning today proved I mean, what an extraordinary engine is as There was already the stage in Lausanne, which since October was earmarked for him and it would have really suited him. But we really tried to give him the chance he could to recharge his batteries as much as he could in a, in a race like this to be competitive to win a stage. So he tried to take advantage of that as much as possible. And today he put all that energy into the win. How would you define his style? Because he's, uh, he's a t type of rider. He's not really a climber. He can sprint. He can do lots of things, but he's kind of an, an all-rider and an intermediate uh, rider. How would you define him? I think you would be quite safe saying that Magnus is somebody when races get hard and there's a selection, he's quite likely to be the quickest rider remaining in a group, either a reduced group or a breakaway, because he can outclimb most of the people who are quicker than him in groups and that gives him a great advantage but i think the main quality that you saw from him today is his real pedigree as a bike racer nowadays there's a lot of talk about data and and science and stuff but what he showed in the final today was like real racing pedigree because he was dropped quite close to the finish but he didn't give up until the line. You know, I mean, that, that obviously sounds like a cliche, but that's really what won in the stage. You're not going to have lots of time to celebrate, given given the the few stages 
you know, coming ahead. So uh, what, a, a little glass of champagne, a beer maybe? This team, we don't win 50, 60, 80 races a year, but we've always won high quality races in the history of this team. And I think that means that as a group, people are really happy. But of course, as you say, we're in the middle of the Tour de France and they're not exactly the easiest stages coming up uh, in the next days. But I think that for, for everybody in the group, from every single staff member involved, just being together this evening and being able to share this moment is going to be a celebration enough, I'd say. And it should also be said that, of course, Alberto Bettiol, you know, is an EF teammate of Magnus Court and was doing a huge amount of tacking uh, from that uh, small group. I mean, I think it's almost as soon as he was caught, he, got, he almost went uh, again himself. And I imagine that's uh, a, a good feeling because after that Roubaix stage, when he, you know, he must have got an awful lot of flack for seemingly pulling on the front and uh, almost closing down the gap uh, on his teammates who were ahead. I imagine that's a great vindication, uh, not just for EF as a team, but also for Betiol himself. It's, it's a strange uh, situation for Betiol because remember, he was, he was, fl- he was flying on, on the cobbles, uh, well, almost unwittingly or at least uh, against probably the team's uh, instructions. And there he was, he was leading the show on this stage and was stopped by a demonstration. There must, there must also be a little bit of frustration in Betiol's uh, head and mind. Well, I'm, I'm sure we will see more of Betiol before the end of the tour. Obviously not in the big mountains that are coming tomorrow, but in the, in- the intermediate stages to between the Alps and the Pyrenees, I, I think we'll see more of Betiol for sure. But it was definitely, as you said, Francois, it was a, a real mix of, uh, or was it, I can't remember, what, someone said that it was a real mix of the, the veterans, but we also had a lot of kind of these young gun uh, riders uh, like Matteo Jorgensen getting to see him at the front of the race. And I believe that Jean, oh, well, you'll know this, Francois, I'm sure, that Jean Cocteau, I believe, lived in Megève and wrote Les Enfants Terribles. You're looking at me very blankly here. No, no, no. Well, <laughs> and maybe you didn't. No. Maybe that's totally wrong. <laughs> Megève is... Uh, you've got different kind of ski resorts in France and Switzerland. But Megève is in, in really in the top flight. It's very posh. Uh, and, it, and it's true that some of the great uh, you know, artists, could, if they went to... to not, not skiing, because let, let's, let's face it, Jean Cocteau probably never put skis on but you know but it, it, it was <laughs> but they, they, they went to the mountains for the for the fresh air and everything and and you're right my cocteau were there that there was a there's a huge character from from Megev that that is the symbol of this of the resort called Emile Allais he, he really is kind of the founder of the of the resort and Emile Allais was a, a, a fantastic uh, personality he was a he was a ski world champion ski uh, olympic medalist in the 1930s uh, I, I had the chance to interview him when he was 93, I think, and he was telling me at the time that he was uh, he was he, he kept skiing at the age of 93, and it was easier for him to uh, to ski than to walk, and m- maybe it applies to to well. riding a bike. I don't know. Maybe it's easier to ride a bike 93 than to walk. I have no idea. No, I, I don't think so. But in in this case, so yeah, Emil Ale is really a legend here, uh, and 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 he, you know he, he liked all the stars. Uh, and all the, the poets and the, the actors and, uh, and Mojave is that kind of place, yeah. 
And it is a, a, a place that gets visited quite a lot, not just by the Tour de France, but obviously by the Criterium to Dauphiné. I think a lot of people were, were looking at uh, Leonard Kamner as being a, a potential winner of this stage, and he was in the breakaway, but didn't manage to make his presence felt uh, in the end. But he, he was the winner during the, the Dauphiné, I think, last year or the the year before he won into Mejev um, another kind of great young talent but Ian you spoke to Matteo Jorgensen who was uh, right up there uh, and is one of the kind of young guns one of the enfants terribles um, that is in the race is that right I did yeah um, I know Matteo fairly well we actually shared an apartment briefly when I was living in Nice and um, yeah he's a great kid he's from like kind of the, the west coast high desert like myself from he's from Boise Idaho I grew up in, in eastern Oregon and uh He's a great kid, and I spoke to him before the race, and he was, as you'll hear, a little bit coy about his plans for this coming week, and, and turns out that he uh, he didn't win the stage, but he was contesting it and wound up finishing fourth, so we can hear a little clip from Matteo in the start before the race and then afterwards at the finish. Matteo Jorgensen, how's the tour going for you? It's good. It's been pretty... Yeah, it's kind of unlike any other bike race I've, I've realized now. They say that, but... I thought, okay, I've done Paris-Nice, whatever, it's going to be similar. But no, that first week was not, not the same, but we made it pretty much unscathed. Got some stitches, but mostly good. And yeah, now we enter into the, the real tour, I think. Well, and I was texting with your brother this morning. Um, he was telling me that you're feeling good. You've obviously been looking after Enrique, which is, I think he's kind of like a, like a silent killer here. I mean, he's sitting up there in the GC. He's yeah. been there every day. Is that, is that your role for the rest of, I guess, a few days in the Alps is look after him or are you going to get some freedom? Uh, a bit of both, a bit of both. I think we'll look for the breakaways. It's, to pick in the break here, it's a bit of luck, so we have to try with a few different guys and then see who makes it. But then, yeah, if you don't make the breakaway, you have to stick with Enrique as long as you possibly can into the stage. Hopefully we can make the breakaway, though. That would be the ideal. Uh, today's a pretty good day for that, so I'm hoping this to is in there. Well, so Mateo, dude, this morning you said, oh, maybe not this week. And you almost just, well, you're in the sprint for the win, stage 10. Today, I kind of had a look yesterday on the rest day at the stages to come. And today was by far the best for me uh, with this finish. So kind of went all in. <laughs> so you're being a little cagey with me at the start. Yeah, you can't play all your cards, Ian. Come on. I mean, I was never in the position you were just in. I mean, what did it feel like to actually, I mean, you guys got caught from a small group behind at 500 meters to go, but to be that close to winning a stage of your first tour. Sucks, it sucks. <laughs> You're disappointed. Really disappointed, yeah, really disappointed. Because There's not that many chances in the Tour de France to win a stage, and yeah, that was uh, one of the really good ones, so it sucks, but. But you are still young, Matteo. <laughs> still young, yeah, yeah. Well, dude, that was really cool to see. It was funny, I was in the press room watching, I said, hey, I spoke to Matteo this morning. This, this might work out all right, <laughs> but Quite. rest up recover Thanks, up man. and um you're looking awfully salty as well it, was, it must have been hot out there i saw a lot of riders collapse at the finish were you one of them i was one of them i was one of them yeah i i, I ate about 1500 milligrams of salt an hour today so probably still in a deficit but well go get some salty food and go eat some salt yeah do it buddy like i said you know it, it's funny for me to see such a young rider be somewhat disappointed after what i see is a an incredibly you know strong performance you know being his first grand tour being still an incredibly young rider he's you know he has so much potential but it just shows how driven these young riders are today and, you know we're seeing an increasing number of young riders at the front of the peloton competing for victories competing for the win um so i think mateo has a lot of you know bright results ahead of himself and i think it was it was good for him and i think very confidence boosting going into the next you know week and a half of the tour that you know he knows he can be up there in the front group and you know 
it was there's there'll be definitely more stages like today where a big group goes and he knows that if he's in a group like that then he could be one of the strongest riders in the group and Ian you, you've done the Tour de France but you did other grand tours before you before you did the tour how much of a step up was doing the tour when you did it or, or did it feel like you know much the same as the doing the Giro or the Vuelta I mean the tour is such a big event and, and Matteo and I spoke about that at the start as you heard um it's just so much bigger, everything around it. And I think, you know, obviously the performance, the performances oftentimes between the Giro, the Vuelta, the Tour, you know, they're, they're pretty similar for the riders at the front, but the, the attention that's required to, you know, focus on the race and, you know, just the, the stress and the media. And I think, you know, a big thing that people don't always take into account thinking of the riders is just the noise of the race. You know, there's fans the, the whole day, there's helicopters, you know, the team directors are more stressed. You know, it's just the, these constant kind of little things that add up, kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back is, is really what the Tour de France is. And obviously now, you know, as we've mentioned, there's other factors in this year's tour that riders are even kind of more stressed and, and aware about. But maybe keeping Francois and I out of the, you know, mix zone might uh, bring a few riders a little bit of uh, peace and quiet after the stage. And I know that uh, obviously every tour is hard, but I have heard um, people say that this one is particularly hard or, or not necessarily uh, that the route is harder than normal, but it's being raced in a way uh, that is harder. Is that your impression, Francois, as well? Just look at the average speed on the, in most of the stages. I mean, we, we were over 45 many, many, many times. Uh, even if, if you have tailwind, uh, you know, it's, it's still it's still demanding on, on on the body, on the on the and all the riders. Yeah, uh, have said that the first week was really really exhausting, and and well and and the the big problem is uh, very 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 hard first day, first week uh, of the tour, and now the the serious mountain is coming up, plus probably a wave of heat that might lead you know the peloton to ride under uh, over forty degrees temperatures. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, t- tomorrow with the, the finish at Le Granon uh, will, will, be, will be the first real, real serious, I mean, test for, for of course, for the GC riders who are going to, to have, a, the, you know, the, the first real great explanation of what, you know, what might happen in the, for the rest of the tour. But, I mean, I can tell you that the last climb tomorrow will be extremely hard on everybody involved. God, that's ominous. But, I mean, it's, it's already hard... You both uh, at the finish line, I think, saw Caleb Ewan or didn't see uh, Caleb Ewan. If you tell us what you know, what, what you saw there. Yeah, we did. We uh, Francois and I were walking up to the team buses, and and we noticed something that was a little bit peculiar. And I I saw an article recently that you know Caleb Ewan's mission for the next couple of days was was to survive the tour. Um, you know, today being the first. I guess, day in the Alps after the rest day, being by far the easiest day compared to what's coming tomorrow and, and on Bastille Day. Um, so we'll, we'll flip over to Francois and I walking up towards the, the team buses and share what we observed at, in the final few K of the race. Well, Francois, we're uh, walking up to the buses, but we just saw something pretty interesting with, I presume, the last rider of the stage. What did we just see? Well, we, we saw four Lotus Sudar riders pulling very, very hard the four of them, and we, we asked ourselves the question, is Caleb Ewan with them? And we couldn't spot him. Way, you know, down the road, like, what, three, four minutes behind? Uh, that, there came Caleb on his own. So, well, the only conclusion we can make of that is that the little guys are already uh, are trying to save the time cut and save their skins, and Caleb might be uh, outside of the time cut. Yeah, we'll we'll find that out. But it's uh, it's surprising that you know he didn't seem that far behind. But I guess at the same time, it's a pretty short stage. I think 
three hours and 17 minutes for the winners. And then, you know, the peloton was nine minutes behind that. And I did just notice that Pogachar is still in yellow by 11 seconds over Kemna, which oh, well is surprising because I thought they would probably like to give the jersey away today. Yeah, that's the impression we had uh, by when the, you know, the, the time gap was so important. But, you know, you have the impression Pogachar and his team, that they, 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 they finally, despite the loss of George Bennett and all, they seem to have a, a real good way to pace themselves. And remember the, the last stage when we thought the peloton was very far away, it was actually just behind the break. So once again, you know, great pacing from, uh, from Tade, who obviously doesn't want to lose the jersey. And well, there we are, stealing, stealing yellow for another day. Yeah, and I did send a, a message to George Bennett to see if he uh, wanted to chat, but he said he needs a few days to decompress and just be left alone. So we'll respect that, but maybe we'll try to catch up with George down the road, depending on how the race shakes out. Yeah, so as we, as we saw, you know, I was pretty surprised to see that Caleb's team had, had left him behind. And, you know, it, it's unfortunately not a good sign that the team did that and that Caleb was in that sort of shape so late in the race, considering the... I don't want to say the lack of difficulty, but yeah, the lack of difficulty compared to what's coming up the next couple of days. And, you know, Caleb's an incredible climber. You know, I spent a lot of time in, in Nice and Monaco training with him. And, you know, we've seen him perform really well in, in Milan San Remo. You know, he's a, he's a sprinter who can climb. So whether he's just, he's not on form, or he doesn't have the confidence, you know, it's, it's, it's sad to see, you know, he had a rough go at the Giro and then now here at the Tour, he hasn't yet been able to, to win a stage or really contest a stage. And with the days coming up, it'll be, uh, yeah, it'd be a challenging for him to actually make it through the Alps, you know, within time cut, I think. It's funny because I actually believe that because of the disruption, because of the protest, um, I heard that the Gruppetto actually made up a, a lot of time. They they weren't forced to uh, start back again at the same time interval as they had reached uh, that protest uh, point. So, you know, the fact that Caleb Ewan was so far back, even after what should have been a, a little bit of a, a reprieve, um, is a bit of a worrying sign for his uh, his campaign but it's funny it must be incredibly difficult uh, as a sprinter to be motivated because there really are so few other opportunities uh, now in this race aren't there Francois? Well there's Paris <laughs> but it's yeah still, it's, there's always Paris. It's, it's a long way away <laughs> yes I mean we, we're, we're in the Alps for, for quite a while and then we're crossing you know as, as we always do uh, fr France you know from uh, east to west uh, to, to reach the Pyrenees but some, sometimes we go, we go down south and then you are near Montpellier, Nîmes, Marseille and, you know, the roads are flat. You, you can have splits, echelons. It's, it can be very warm. But this, this time we're going more like Massif Central-wise and we're going to Saint-Étienne, Mand, in, in this area. Mand is going to be dreadful, I mean, in terms of the heat. And so th there won't be any time, any rest and any opportunity uh, for, for the sprinters then and um, as you know fatigue you know takes its toll and a sprint at the end or a, in, the, in the third part of the Tour de France is never the same so yeah and unfortunately I think uh, it, it we'll, see, we'll see what happens in, what happens in Paris but I'm afraid some of the sprinters uh, in the Tour now might not be in Paris to, 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 you know, to contest the, the stage victory that day uh, no breakfast yet. I was rolling through Morzine and I saw a sign for the Col de Jouplain, which is a climb I've actually never done. And now, I guess, 45 minutes into my morning ride, I find myself at the top of the Col de Jouplain here with some cows. I have not seen any cyclists this morning, which kind of surprised me being the morning of a tour stage, but I'm sure most people will 
head out later for some type of ride. I saw plenty of bikes when I arrived in Geneva yesterday. Goodness, there are some absolutely stunning climbs here in the Alps. I've done a lot of them, but I've never done the Plan. And just as you reach the top, you can look off to your right and you have a pretty spectacular view of Mont Blanc. And I'm up at the top of the Plan, which is, I think, 1,700 meters. It's hot. I'm sweating. I do have a thick undershirt on, but shorts, short sleeve, and uh, it's going to be a warm one today. So I'm going to drop back into the valley, drop back to Morzine, hopefully find a bakery. I heard some French folks yesterday speak about some very good saucissons, so I'm not sure what I'll do. There are a few teams staying in Morzine, so maybe I could even try to catch up with some folks when I get down to the bottom, but... Being my first Tour de France as a journalist, I should probably get some breakfast and head back to meet up with Francois to decide today's plan because it's going to be a big stage. Um, really, the next three days. I mean, I feel incredibly fortunate to uh, be here for the three three days in the Alps. I think it worked out perfectly to have Mitch Docker, who did an awesome job on the podcast, covering some of the flatter stages, the Roubaix stages, sprint stages, stages he's really a, a specialist at. Compared to Mitch, I'm a slightly better climber. I have more to probably share on the climbs versus Mitch has a lot more knowledge and experience when it comes to sprints, leadouts, cobblestones. So Lionel's done a really good job of assembling the team for this year's Tour de France. So I'm going to leave these cows up here to graze and I'm going to drop down and do some grazing of my own. Well, I'm back down in Morzine and I got my first breakfast of this year's tour. I may need more. It's just a, a croissant amande, an almond croissant, and I have to say, not the best almond croissant I have had. There was a place I used to go to in Nice up in La Turbie that had uh, very, very good almond croissants. This one, some people may like it, is very flaky and very lightly um, filled with almond paste. And for whatever reason, I like to, I like my almond croissants with a little bit of uh, a little more filling, a little more kind of density, but this is very light and flaky, which is good. I did just come off to Col de Plan, and my goodness, I quickly remembered why I left the world tour. I clearly wasn't in a race, and I wasn't trying to race anyone, but my goodness, I could not imagine going back to the days of being in the world tour and racing down a road like that. Beautiful, but small and narrow and very steep. So I'm going to finish up this croissant and enjoy being on the other side of the fence at this year's tour. And speaking of that, as I rolled back into Morzine, they do have the beginning, the first neutralized section all fenced off. And it makes getting around a real pain in the butt. I will say I was trying to get to this bakery and I couldn't really go around. So I had to go over. I had to hop a fence in my cycling cleats to get to the other side. But I made it, and now I'm going to have to climb back over and ride back to our hotel for the morning. And I'll meet up with Francois back there to make a plan for the day and try to find a coffee. I should get my first coffee of the day. Surprisingly, after a long day travel and a late night, I uh, went out and did a bike ride without coffee, which, who knows, maybe I could break my addiction to caffeine, but that probably won't happen. I probably should stay on top of the, the coffee for this this week. Now, Ian, we heard you there, well, very, very bright and early uh, this morning. I couldn't believe it. I actually, by the time that you had been out on your bike, uh, had however many croissants, uploaded all your audio, I hadn't even woken up yet. So it was a bit of a surprise to me um, hearing that you'd got up early and got, got on your bike and got out there on some pretty 
uh, hot alpine roads. But tell us about Breakfast with Boz. That was the, the very first um, of the features this week. Uh, tell us uh, about it and what you're going to be doing this week. Yeah, well, so I host a podcast of my own called Breakfast with Boz. And I was going to do a uh, daily podcast covering the Tour de France. And then when Lionel offered for me to come over here, I said, I would love to come over, but I would like to continue to share my breakfast exploits with people. So... I decided to fly over to France with my bike, and everyone knows that France has some phenomenal pastry. So my my goal and my mission while here is to daily, hopefully, try to get out on my bike before the tour starts and, yeah, find find a a good road, a beautiful road, somewhere to ride, and then hopefully find a a nice uh, patisserie to stop and enjoy my my morning. And and this morning I got to go up a a beautiful alpine climb. And, um, yeah, we, we have a tight little cars we don't have a ton of space in the vehicle but everything does fit Francois has his nest in the back and I was able to get my ride which I feel much better for Um, although I'm very quickly realizing that I'm going to be burning the candle at both ends by staying up late Uh, we had a wonderful dinner last night I had you know just flown in from Boston and we stayed up till I don't know 11 11 30 having dinner had several bottles of wine and and some fantastic food I had a raclette and Francois had a Something with some morel mushrooms. Um, so we're, try- we're trying to make sure we cover all the meals of the day. So I-, I covered breakfast. We had a beautiful dinner last night. We're heading out for dinner here shortly. And I also got to experience my first press buffet today, which um, was actually quite nice. I actually walked into the press booth and I had thought that that was the press buffet. And there was like some coffee and some apples and a croissant. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to eat some fruit and more croissants for the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but turns out it was in the room next to where we were sitting down and, and doing work. And there was a full, a full meal. Francois can explain a bit more about what we actually ate. But um, I think Francois, and, and I know Ed Pickering from Roulaire, who's traveling with us, he ate fish, which seemed a little bit strange for me to be eating fish in the, in the Alps. But anyways, uh, it was a pretty well-stocked buffet, I would say. Well, you've got the perfect guide to the press buffet. Oh, did you go early or did you go late, Boz? Because that, that's a key issue with the press buffet. It depends how early you turn up. is depends on how good the food is. Well, I think we were early, and I'll let Francois answer the following questions, but I did a quick calculation today of the number of Tour de France's Francois has covered, and I think that Francois has eaten at least 735 press buffet lunches at the Tour de France, which is phenomenal. But um, yeah, definitely a record of, of the press buffet. And I, I thought it was a great meal, but Francois definitely has more experience and, and knowledge of how today compared to other press buffets. It was all right. Wait. It was all right. Yeah, not, not, not the very best we've ever had, but really good. Uh, 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 we had, as we said, there was fish, but there, 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 there are fish in the Alps, you know, uh, because you have lakes. Uh, Lake Geneva being one of those, and uh, and we got other little lakes here and there, and uh, like and we have, you have the same fish in those lakes that you can find in Scotland, uh, namely perch, you know, and so th- this this is one of the one of I think the the, the, the fish we had today was actually lake fish uh, from the area. Uh, we also had poupiette, uh, which is one of my favorite. I, I'm not a great meat eater, but I like these little uh, kind of when meat is kind of a you know. Uh, so what what is popiet for the uh, I mean, lots of you know what popiet is. It's veal. It's kind of veal roll stuffed with you know, uh, yeah, kind of uh, other herbs and a little bit of, of other meats. It's uh, yeah, very tasty. As a good old friend of mine would have said, um, yeah, it was fine. Vegetable, uh, a lot, you know, mashed potatoes, and unfortunately, not no wine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We're, we're That's not s- a proper buffet, <laughs> yeah, surely. We're, we're to settle on, on the water, but, but hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll do better tonight. 
Well, what do you get for doing 735 press buffets? They should bring you out a, you know, because you always get a prize after doing 20 Tour de France's and then not onwards, don't you? They need to give you a, a giant sausage or something from Spa I, for that I, achievement. I suggest, I suggest that to the, uh, to the, to the press uh, officers, uh, you know, at ASO. Uh, they, they, they kicked us out of the paddock today, so we can't go to the buses and talk to the riders. At least, you know, make sure we have good buffets and make sure the, that the guys who've done more than 700 buffets get, you know, rewarded as they should. <laughs> Maybe a, maybe a wine, bottle of Chateau Neuf de Pop at every lunch for Francois. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to our long-term sponsors, Science in Sport, and they support not just our coverage here at the Tour de France, but they cover the whole of the Cycling Podcast family, including Explore and Cycling Podcast Feminine. And, uh, well, you know, everyone should uh, know what, the, what you need to do if you want to get 25% off your Science in Sport products. You go to scienceinsport.com and on... Cycling Podcast Feminine, I'll bring, I'll bring something over from the Cycling Podcast Feminine, because on the Cycling Podcast Feminine, we always sing the code that you need to type in. And so I'm going to give you guys a little demonstration, and then by the end of the week, I'm hoping you're going to join in. I mean, I think Lionel joined in once, so just to, that's, that's the right record that you've got to beat. So the code is SISCP25, SISCP25, CP25. CP25, SISCP25. I'm getting absolutely nothing from the other side. I'm, this, not very uh, I'm not very Zoom musical. Call. I know Francois is, is a musician <laughs> and plays guitar. I'll, I'll, I'll do a crooner ver version of it tomorrow if you want. Oh, I would love that. But yes, go to scienceinsport.com and uh, type in the code SISCP25 for 25% off uh, all of their products um, on there. Well, I tell you what, the rest of the peloton are going to need an awful lot of science in sport products with what is to come uh, this week because tomorrow really the big uh, alpine coals begin as if, you know, today wasn't, wasn't a hard enough day uh, as it was. Uh, but tell us, Francois, what have we got? Well, what are the riders, I want to say look forward to, but some of them I'm sure are not looking forward to tomorrow, are We're they? We're going to Le Granon. And uh, it's, it's probably one of the hardest uh, climbs in the Alps. And we know there are lots of those. Uh, Le Granon is the place, the last time the tour came was in 1986. It was my first Tour de France. And, um, and that day, uh, Bernardino really struggled. And it's the, the last time on Le, Gran on Le Granon that he, he, he held the yellow jersey in his career. And he said afterwards, that one of the very rare times when he really, really suffered on the bike was climbing Le Granon. So, you know, riders, if you're listening to the podcast, just, you know, to kind of ease off before to, to tomorrow's stage, well, I'm sorry, but you're going to struggle. Another one is going to struggle, because that's what we're planning to do, and I hope we can do that. I, I, I hope to send uh, Ian, uh, you know, riding up Le Granon to tell us how hard it is. And... <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the plan, and that's maybe uh, for myself. It's maybe a positive thing of the paddock being closed because obviously we can no longer go to the start, and I think they're even trying to put some restrictions on on the finish line. So I'm hoping to ride up to the top tomorrow, test out the climb, um, 
and and maybe try to finagle my way and, and speak to some riders up at the top at the finish line. But yeah, I, I mean, it's amazing that, you know, the Tour de France covers so many of these climbs so often, like we said, Megev, and, you know, obviously we have Alpe d'Huez in a couple of days, but there are still these climbs that, as Francois said, haven't been used since 1986, which in my mind kind of blows me away because, you know, being here in the Alps, there's so many roads and climbs and towns that you hear so regularly. And yet there's still these climbs that we rarely actually see. And I guess I've never seen in my lifetime. So I'm looking forward to seeing it tomorrow and hopefully riding up it as well. I mean, well, I hope there's a, a huge almond croissant on the top of that because that, that's <laughs> going to be quite a mighty breakfast with Boz, isn't it? If, you, if you're going to do all that. Yes, um, that's, that's the hope. I, I know it is a dead end road. Um, so I'm not sure what's actually up on top. Maybe there's a small village and I'm sure they're very aware that the Tour de France is coming. So I'm sure that any business looking to make a little coin will be open tomorrow afternoon. But Ian, you know, how important is it to have reconned uh, a stage in that much detail? I mean, you say that they haven't been up on this uh, this climb for, a, well, for, you know, in some in a lot of cases in the lifetimes of the riders. But, you know, how important is it to know a climb in that much detail when you're going for GC? So? Well, you know, there's a lot of recon that riders can do now just through, you know, the internet and photos and, you know, simulation. But I, I would assume that a lot of riders actually did go and check out this climb because, you know, I think if I remember correctly, it's, you know, 10, 10 or 11 kilometers at nine, over 9%, which is an incredibly hard climb. So I would assume that riders may have gone this spring to actually check out this climb um, at some point, just because, you know, it really is kind of the, the first decisive stage of, this year's tour. I mean, obviously we had La Planche de Belfi the other day, but you know, this is, there are multiple climbs tomorrow leading into the, to the final climb as well, which, you know, makes it a, the first true and proper Alpine stage of this year's Tour de France. And Francois, for you, is, is this a, a stage where it could be won or is it a stage where it could be lost? I mean, most stages are stages where the yellow jersey could be lost, aren't they? No, in, in, my, in my opinion, this, this is going to be one of the real tests of strengths of the, the GC leaders. Uh, because there's no, there's no, there's no hiding, there's no lying, there's no, you know, there's no tactics or I'm, I'm in such a hard climb, you, you you have to be at your best or otherwise you you know you lose time and uh, and and the, the riders, the GC you know uh, contenders were going to be up there if they're if they have good legs and if they feel great, that's that's an ideal terrain to attack. Obviously, we all expect that a Pogacar to be the, the the man, you know, to 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 impose his uh, his grip on the tour on on that climb. But we see, we'll see. I mean, the GC is, uh, is uh, remains kind of an undecided. When we we're starting to see who the, uh, the 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 informed guys are. Among them, Romain Bardet, whom I talked to uh, this morning, he's been very discreet in the last couple of months and years, and and still doing all right. So it was nice to uh, to have his views after a very good first week uh, of the tour and looking forward to the rest of it. Romain, you started this Tour de France well with expectations, but maybe n the ambitions were not really clear. GC or stages, now a week has gone into the second week. I think the ambitions have probably changed. Not at all. No, I think we're taking day by day and uh, we'll see. So far it's been uh, quite okay. I'm not here to drop the overall, it's also is our life in the bunch and uh, but we will see the target is yeah to take the race as it comes and uh, see for some stage uh, win opportunity. Well you know more better than me that in the position you're in GC it might be more difficult now to go for a stage win. Yeah but so far we didn't, didn't see many breakaway uh, making it to the line so I think it was uh, in the first week the best uh, the best option to try to get the stage win. 
but to, still to be in the top 10 and to, to have ridden so confidently from the start of the, the tour must give you ideas for the GC anyway. Yeah, but uh, we know we're not, not even halfway to the race, so we have to really keep calm. Uh, and we'll see the, the biggest part is still to come, so yeah, we just wanted to have it smooth and easy so far. No injury problem left? I mean, you had that crash, uh, any any consequences, Any anything left from that? Yeah, obviously it was not ideal, but you know, everyone has a bit of misfortune in the, in the truth, so... I hope uh, yeah, I made the most of the race day and uh, I'm ready for the Alpine stage. The, the other thing the peloton is talking about is COVID. I know that you were you, you, had, you had strong uh, positions on this. What, what's, what, what's your take on this? I have nothing to add. I mean, uh, we have rules to respect and uh, hopefully we can get through this. But yeah, the, the threat is everywhere. And before we go, today's Tour de Buffalo honouring our friend Richard Moore is from an episode of Kilometre Zero in 2015 when Richard went out onto the Col de Monts to mingle with the fans. The Tour du Buffalo, remembering Richard Moore. Today I'm on the top of the Col de Monts. Uh, I've been abandoned here by Daniel and Lionel and Team Jaguar to spend most of the afternoon on top of the mountain. This is the first day sort of heading into the Alps, or at the gateway to the Alps here, stage finishing gap. And this mountain is, the, the top of the mountain is 12 kilometers from the finishing gap. So there's a big crowd lining the road all the way up. I'm right at the top at the moment. I'm gonna probably wander down a little bit, try and meet some fans. Um, but at this stage in the race, or in the day, two, two and a half hours before the riders are due through, there's team vehicles speeding past, official vehicles speeding past. The publicity caravan is due any moment. And there's a very nice atmosphere up here. But one of the reasons for deciding to spend the day up here with the fans was to find out what the atmosphere was really like when the riders went past. There have been alleged incidents involving the team Sky Riders in particular. Chris Froome said that he had a cup of urine thrown at him the other day by a spectator. Luke Rowe said that he had he was spat at and Richie Porte of course as he told the podcast got a punch in the ribs as he climbed La Pierre Saint Martin in the Pyrenees so let's let's see for ourselves what it's actually like what's your what's your name I'm Jilly Hunter from we're from Newton Longville near Milton Keynes in Bucks I'm Dick Hunter we've been over since uh Two weeks ago, Tuesday. You've been following the whole race around? Yeah, not not completely, but we've done how many stages, Mother? About uh, six or seven now. So, yeah. And were you in the Pyrenees as well? Or? Yeah, 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 it was very good. Yeah. Very good, we so, enjoyed the Pyrenees. And you've got the you've got the Isle of Man flag, you've got the Union Jack, and you've got the Tour de France flag, so you're really covering all bases there. <laughs> we try to. We like to support everybody, and uh, I know Cav's not in contention with this sort of day, but... Uh, you're, you're wearing a, a Union Jack in your hair as well. I do like to have my little <laughs> little Union Jack on my head as well to uh, support the Sky team as well. We're uh, great supporters of Sky. Well, we got the first uh, mighty Alpine test uh, tomorrow, and I guess for you two, it's going to be a test of uh, what audio you can actually collect now at the starts and finishes, trying to uh, do your own kind of adventures around the sneaking into the paddock, I believe. Um, so, uh, well, thank you very much, Francois, for your company. Thank you, Rose. <laughs>
Uh, and thank you, Ian. Thank you, Rose. And uh, I look forward to hearing, uh, well, what you guys do. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing how you get on in on that, that massive climb. And I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what happens uh, on the first uh, big test. So join us tomorrow. A demain. A demain. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.